All right, this is part 42 in our study of law and gospel. Part 42, we were going to not do this tonight because I thought I didn't know who was going to be here, but we have a lot to get everyone caught up on. If you'd missed both parts this morning, um, if you can only listen to one, listen to part 41 because I do a review of part 40 to get everyone caught up. But you definitely need to hear uh, part 41 because we get into some serious, serious issues. So far in our study of long gospel, I will say that thesis number seven is the most important up to this point, right? And the reason it's most important is not so much because of the thesis, but because of the issues that we were encountered uh, immediately with some of the, the things we talked about. So I'm going to go through this quickly and try to do a quick review and let's see if we can advance this. Everybody ready? Thinking caps on. Here we go. Thesis number seven. And our study of understanding law and gospel, or properly understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel, is this, that the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached for, first and then the law. If gospel is preached first, then the law, what happens to the gospel? I want to make sure everyone has this down so this is never forgotten. The gospel is turned into a solution for something it was never designed to solve. Right? What is the gospel supposed to solve? Our sin problem. How does anyone know the sin problem? The law. So the law has to be preached first. If you preach the gospel first, typically what is the gospel then preached to solve? It's to, it's to fix your depression. It's to make you happier. It's to give you purpose in life. It's to make you a better person. It's to help you with your addiction. It's to help you with whatever is, it, and it destroy, the gospel is literally completely annihilated. Whenever that happens, that is not the gospel. All right? When you get a bunch of young people at church camp, and you talk about all of the emotions that they may be feeling as a young person because they will be feeling them. And you say the answer is Jesus. You don't have a friend? Jesus. You're lonely? Jesus. You feel depressed? Jesus. You don't feel like you fit in? Jesus will help you fit in. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel was never designed to fix all of those problems. It's Christmas time, right? Why was he named Jesus? The text literally says, he will save his people from their sins. He came to save us from our sins. So if you, remove, if you preach the gospel first, the gospel will become a solution to something it was never meant to solve. So you have to preach law first. Does everyone understand? I cannot stress this enough. This is so vitally important. This happens over and over and over and over and over again, right? Whenever you listen to a sermon, whenever you listen to sermons, ask yourself, what's the problem they are presenting and what are they offering as a solution? A lot of times what the, what the issue is, is you need to be a better husband. You need to be a better wife. And so the solution always is the gospel, not to save you from your failure as a husband or a wife, but it will actually make you a better husband and wife, the gospel came to save you from your sin. We, we, it, we've turned the gospel into a therapeutic message to resolve all emotional hang-ups, and, and that's not what it's designed to be. 
Right? So I cannot stress this enough. So we, the, the, the word of God is not rightly divided when we do what? When we preach gospel first, then law. In other words, there is a correct order in all of this. Right? I hope you understand this. And then what, what they decided to do in this thesis is to give us four types of a perverse sequence or four types of a wrong sequence. So really the whole thesis is about we've got to preach law and gospel in its right order. Right? We've got to preach law and gospel in its right order. And they want to give us four types of a, what they call a perverse sequence or a wrong sequence. Right? The first one we've already we've just mentioned. The first in the first place, the order may be disor- be basically wrong if we preach gospel prior to the law. It, it's a it's a it, the first way it's wrong. The first type of wrong sequence is the gospel is preached before law. Everybody got that? Okay. Then here were the scriptures they used, which raised a million questions. The first one was Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Very famous verse because this is used on Ash Wednesday, right before the imposition of the ashes. Right before they put the ashes, if you want to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. I've got to go quick, I've got to go quick. Mark 1.15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now, the book argues that the word repent is law, and the word believe is gospel. Remember a proper distinction between law and gospel? I cannot stress this enough. Both Both of them are imperatives. Both of them are commands. All right, well, they're they're written that way. They're stated that way, okay? So, guess what? Both are law. Both are law statements. They tell you to repent. They tell you to believe. What does the law do? It condemns. It shows you your sin. Well, how does the words repent and believe show you your sin? Because it shows you whether you have changed your mind or whether you believe, or whether you've changed your mind in repentance, and whether you have believed. You are condemned by it. Now, that means, this is where it gets very tricky theologically, and a lot of people don't think this through, but this is just basic historical Christianity. There's nothing I'm saying here that's crazy, or I know it sounds crazy to the modern ear, but it's not crazy in church history. If you're not very careful, this is what happens. You'll say, well, how does the person become saved? By repenting and believing. Well, if they're doing the repenting and they're doing the believing in and of themselves, then what did you just, what, what did just happen? You're saved by works. That's the problem. Now, most Christians believe that any, any person can repent and believe on their own. That, become, that then turns it into a works-based system, right? What we argue, in histo- and especially in the Reformation was argued, we, the, repentance is a command, believe is a command, but God grants the repentance and grants the faith. Therefore, it is a law that condemns, and what the law condemns 
or, or let me state it this way. What the law demands, God provides. Right? All the demands of the law are met. So, we, God grants repentance and grants faith. If you say you're doing it on your own, it becomes works, and it's a, ma- it's a major problem. So, we would argue that both repent and believe are laws, and they are fulfilled by Christ granting repentance and granting faith. We made sure that we understand repentance is a change of mind, not a change of action, because if we make it a change of action, then we end up with a whole new set of problems, right? Well, how do you know you're truly saved? You've repented. How do you know you repented? Your behavior has changed. Well, then how much behavior is required to show that you're saved? Well, some. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And not only that, you would have to wait till they get to the end of your life to make sure you've changed enough to prove that the initial repentance was genuine, so therefore no one could ever have any assurance. It's just, and it turns all into works. There are so many problems with it. We went into great detail about all of that, okay? So that was the first type of a wrong sequence. What's the first wrong sequence? Gospel first, then law. And that does what to the gospel? Makes it a solution to a problem it was never designed to solve. Everybody understand that? Okay, I cannot, oh, we've got to get that down, all right? The two scriptures created other problems. I just hinted at some of it. We don't have time to go back all the way back through it. Please go back and listen, all right? What is the second perverse or wrong sequence? Sanctification before justification. Sanctification before justification. Now, this happens all the time within Christianity. What is the way, what is the first way? We only got to one way. What is the first way that sanctification in the American church in 2022 is preached before justification? What is the first way in which it occurs in the church? And it happens every day in American Christianity where we try to impose biblical standard upon the world. Because when we try to get the world to live like Christians, what are we trying to impose on them? Sanctification. You can't have sanctification before justification. The Great Commission tells us how to do it. Go and teach. What's that teaching? Evangelism. What follows that? Baptism. Then what follows that? Teaching them to obey. When do you teach them to obey? After salvation. We run around and we get mad because the world doesn't live like a Christian, so we want to pass laws, we want to get people elected, because we want... You can't... Why would you do that? You can't impose sanctification on someone. It. It's the most broken theology in the history of the world. And, and not only that, you're trying to impose law on an unregenerate heart. Even a regenerate heart is still going to do what to the law? Break it, so what do you expect an unregenerate heart to do? Hate it. How well did the law do with Israel? Nobody keeps it. We all break it. All of us. I understand that we may not like what the world is doing. I understand it may bother us. 
What we should be is more bothered by our own sin than the sins of everybody else. I don't know why we have to run around like a bunch of Karens telling everyone what to do, but we need to stay out of everyone's business because we have enough of our own sin. It's just that their sin is different than our sin, and what's the best sin to pick on? The sin that you don't have a problem with. What's the worst sin you want to talk about? Your sin. So whenever you hear your Christian friends wanting to run around and tell everyone what to do and impose this and do this and fight for this and we're going to do this, tell them, hey, how about you learn Theology 101 and you stop preaching sanctification before justification? Now, they're going to look at you like you're absolutely crazy and not know what you're talking about, but that's exactly what they're doing. You can't undo that. What does the world need? Sanctification or justification? Justification. I want everyone to say that. What does the world need? Sanctification or justification? Justification. Because even if they're sanctified, even if they're sanctified apart from justification, what's the end result? Hell. Want everyone to hear that. Even if we can get them justification without just, if we can get them sanctification without justification, the end result is hell. We are not saved by just sanctification. We are saved by justification, not sanctification. Christians have made it their job to run around trying to get everyone sanctified. There used to be a time we were worried about getting people justified. But Christians throughout different periods of time have run into these problems. In the 80s, it was Christians got to get rid of MTV. We'll go back to the 50s. We got to get rid of Elvis. We got to get rid of Elvis. He's going to destroy the world. We got to get rid of Elvis. And then it was, oh no, the Beatles. And then it was, oh no, Led Zeppelin. Then, oh no, it was Black Sabbath. Oh no, it was Iron Maiden. And it was always some band. And then it was, Marilyn Manson's going to, it's the end of the world. Right? It's always something. But what do we want them to do? We want them to act like what? Christians. And we want them to act like Christians not because we care about them, because we care about our own comfort. It's the most, it's the f- most theologically backwards ideas that I've ever seen in my life. You never preach sanctification before justification. That's... That's number one. That's the first way it occurs. That's the first way it occurs. And we see it all the time within Christianity. We see it over and over and over. What is the second way do you think we, as Christians, promote sanctification before justification? Can you think of a second way? What do you think? Nobody has an idea for a second one? Well, we'll see if we'll come up with a second one. Let's see what they have to say, and we'll see if we come up with a second one. All right, here we go. The second perversion of the true sequence occurs when sanctification of life is preached before justification. The preaching of forgiveness of sins for justification by grace is nothing else than forgiveness of sins. I become righteous by appropriating the righteousness of Christ as my own. Now, here's what happens. We argue that we preach justification. That's what Christians claim, right? 
Christians claim all the time, oh, we preach justification. We preach justification. We preach justification. But listen to the messages. They actually preach nonstop sanctification. In fact, they preach sanctification as what? Oh, we all know this. They, say, they claim they pray, preach justification first, but the messages are all sanctification-driven, right? And they preach sanctification as what? As proof, proof of justification. And once you begin to preach sanctification as proof of justification, then what, 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 ultimately you're flipping it. Ultimately you're flipping it. Because now you're like, okay, you're justified by faith, but, it, but within five seconds, what do you do? But, but, however, sanctification, 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 sanctification. Well, and, immediate, and immediately you don't live up to their view of sanctification, then you're not saved. So immediately, what, be, take, what becomes in first place? Sanctification. And did you hear what the, the book said? I read it really quick. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you, if you caught it, but let me read it to you one more time. Because immediately after telling us that it's a perversion to preach sanctification before justification, this is immediately what they write afterwards, which means they're thinking, we're thinking the same way. Listen to what they say. The preaching of forgiveness of sins for justification by grace is nothing else than forgiveness of sins. I become righteous by appropriating the righteousness of Christ as my own. When I preach justification, I preach justification by faith. What word do we put? Alone. What do we call that? Sola. Sola fide. Right? Sola fide. Right? Faith alone. Remember, one of the key elements of the Reformation. Right? Faith alone. Now, if I truly preach that, and this is the question, is justification the appropriation of God's righteousness by faith alone and the forgiveness of sins alone, and that is all it is? If I say that's all it is, I can't say, well, that's all it is, but... However, if you don't do this, 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 you never got that, then that means justification isn't just the forgiveness of sins. Justification is now what? Sanctification. Meaning the two are forever linked and entwined and you can't have one without the other. Meaning... That justification is not merely the forgiveness of sins and not merely the appropriation of righteousness. It is what? It's the, it's, well, well, let me say this. It's not the imputed righteousness alone. It's the appropriation of an infused righteousness, which is Roman Catholicism. Which I have tried to tell you now over and over and over. And this is what I will be. I look, I will acknowledge a lot of this is, we, we can call it a hypothesis and we can test it and throw it out and you can reject it. But I make, I will literally draw the line in the sand and die on this hill and I don't care who gets offended. Your choices, this book is making it very clear. You either become a Catholic 
or you adopt a correct understanding between law and gospel, this nonsense of this middle-of-the-road garbage, you're just a Catholic and you just won't acknowledge it. And what I hate is you want Catholicism and doctrine when it comes to soteriology, but what do you not want? You don't want the Catholic Church telling you what to believe. You don't want their authority. You want to be able to make up your own rules, but you want their teaching on salvation. And you say, no, I'm not a Catholic. Yes, you are. You believe in infused righteousness. Because when you link justification with sanctification, and you're making a, look, hey, you don't have your justification unless you get enough sanctification, then you're telling me justification is an infused righteousness that produces sanctification, and the only way I know I got enough infused righteousness is I see enough sanctification. Which now, you literally have placed sanctification, really, everything is about sanctification. Everything becomes about sanctification. And I'm so sick and tired of hearing that it's the antinomians, it's the antinomians, it's the antinomians. If I hear the word antinomian again, I'm going to scream. Find me a sermon preached by an antinomian. Just, just, and and, and I, I know I always tell people to do things. Nobody will actually do what I ask them to do. But I always give you the opportunity to prove that I'm wrong. Just tomorrow, wake up and just start listening to every random sermon you can find. You know what every sermon is? Do this, 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 do this. That's every sermon. 15 ways to be a better husband. 10 ways to be a better wife. 5 ways to be a better kid. 6 ways to sweep the floor better than the last person. It's do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's all sermons are. And I understand why they're that way. Why are they that way? Because people feel like they have to have practical principles. So it's all, and then people say, it's antinomianism is taking over the church. Antinomianism is not taking over the church. That's ridiculous. If antinomian, if antinomian, if I can say the word, if antinomianism was taking over the church, what would, what would that preaching sound like? It would be like, don't do anything. You don't need to do Anything. Have you ever heard a sermon that says that? It's always do something, do something, do something, do something, do something, do something. So the next time I hear a claim of antinomianism, it's, man, it's ridiculous. The, whenever someone, when, when anytime someone makes that accusation, I almost want to go, oh, how cute. You learned a theology word. Oh, that's so cute. Because it's almost like a kid learning a new word. It's like, you, 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 they wouldn't know antinomianism if it drove by and shot at them three times. They've no, guess what? The people who make that accusation, you think they've ever read an antinomian theology book? No. They haven't. They ever listened to an antinomian sermon? No, because you'd have to really seek it out to find it. Because what's our natural built-in inclination? Remember, what did I say? Are we gospel-minded or law-minded? We're law-minded. So it's always do something. It's always do something over and over and over. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Jesus in the boat, right? Or Jesus walking on the water. And then uh, Peter's like, 
oh no, who's that? And, and you know, is that you, Lord? And then he hops out of the boat and walks through. And then what, what, what does the discernment become? Do you have enough faith? Look to Jesus. Don't look to the world. You, and, and it turns into 50 things that you can do. If it becomes about Jesus feeding the multitude, what does it turn into? You giving your lunch to Jesus. You be willing to sacrifice. Every sermon, right? If it's about Jesus healing someone, it's about, see, Jesus can fix your sin so that you can get up and walk. It always becomes about you, 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 you. Even in passages that are all about what Jesus did, it flipped around about what I should do. We all know that, right? We all know that. Now, am I saying that those are always wrong? I'm just saying... That proves that we're an, that antinomianism is not the dominant theology in the minds of most Christians. We are law-based and we're performance-based. And so, with, and inadvertently, what do we end up doing? Here's justification, here's sanctification. Sanctification takes first place. In fact, justification is merely about what? How sanctified we can become. Justification is even preached about more about how sanctified we can become. We've destroyed the entire order. And once that is destroyed, well, bad things happen. All right, now go to Psalm 134. Psalm 130, verse 4. Psalm 130, they're going to give us a number of scriptures. Now, it's our job to determine if if it makes sense, doesn't make sense. Everybody there? All right, Psalm uh, Psalm 130, verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Now, what they're trying to under, what they're trying to, what do you think they're trying to demonstrate with Psalm 130, verse 4? Do what? It's the order. Thank you. What, what's the order? Forgiveness first, and then fear, sanctification second. All right. It's, 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 there's, there, there's an order. 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 Does everybody see the order? Okay. You were scaring me there for a second, because I, I was like, does everybody see it? All right, go to Psalm 119. Verse 32. Psalm 119, verse 32. Psalm 119, verse 32. Everybody see it? What do we have? Right? I will run the way of the commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Right? How does the NIV translate Psalm 119.32? There you go. What comes first? Setting the heart free. Setting the heart free. What comes first? Forgiveness of sins. What comes first in the King James? Enlarging my heart is the way it puts it. It's the, it's the justification that comes first. Something has to go in the right order. All right? They have another one here. 
They have another one here. And I'm, and I'm not saying that all of these are going to work out perfectly, but I just want you to see what they're using here. Um, so, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. First Corinthians one thirty. Always get nervous when we go to First Corinthians, okay? Just because so many bad things, uh, people do weird things with this book. All right, First Corinthians one thirty. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All right. Now, this is talking about what we are in Christ. What is Christ to us? What is Christ made to us? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, this one is an important one, right? Because this is what Christ is to us. So, are we called to have wisdom? Yes. What is our wisdom? Christ. What else? What's the next thing? Do we, are we called to be righteous? Yes. How are we righteous? In Christ. Sanctification. Oh boy. Now, remember, this gets us back to a very important concept about sanctification. All right, this is very important. Remember, three specific areas of sanctification. All right? Let's always remember this one, right? What's the first sanctification? What's the first sanctification? Okay, thank you, thank you. This is called what? Eternal sanctification in the sense that it's in in the past, right? It's in the past, right? When were we sanctified in the past? Okay, foreknowledge, predestination, those things. In other words, he knew of us before and he had set us apart for his purpose and his thing. However, we don't have to get into the whole doctrine, but just understand that there is a sanctification that occurs in eternity past, right? God knows whom he's going to save. We've been set apart. That, as, that, ha, that is a past tense. We have been sanctified. Right? That, that's the eternity past sanctification. If you want to say eternal, say eternal, eternal past sanctification. All right? Then, what is the present sanctification? That is sanctified. This is being sanctified. This is the present tense. Right? And this is the ongoing process of being sanctified, right? And then there is the eternal future, which is glorification, which I will be completely sanctified, yes? Now, my sanctification is what? 100% guaranteed in this sense. I have been sanctified and I will be sanctified. It's this middle one that creates all the confusion. It's the middle one that creates all the confusion. Those two are are given, right? How do I know that I'm going to be sanctified? We talk about this in Romans 8. We we covered this recently. Well, those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified, or, or will predestine. And then those he justifies, he will glorify. That is a guarantee. Nothing can stop that. 
Every single person will, has been sanctified, or every person who is saved has been sanctified and will be sanctified. It's this middle portion. Now this middle portion, there are two aspects to it. All right? In the, in the process that's happening, we forget this. In this process, in one on one level, I'm already sanctified. Why? Christ is my sanctification. So in one level, I, I'm already sanctified. They're like, but you're going through sanctification. I know when it's perfect. I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. Because Christ is my sanctification. But then there's a practical aspect where I'm in the process of being sanctified. And is it ever perfect? No, I'm going to make sure it's never perfect. Is it messy? Absolutely. Are there good days? And are there bad days? Are there good years? Bad years. It's messy. But no matter how messy it is. So, so here's what I would say to people. No, your sanctification proves your justification. I'm like, well, bring it on. Because in Christ, I'm sanctified. He said, well, that's not true. Yes, it is. Because his righteousness has been imputed to my account. What, what do we, what do we talk about? How do we usually define sanctification? It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. In Jesus, how much am I like Jesus? Completely. So, yeah. Because whenever I get into these conversations and people start arguing with me and I try to bring this out, they just look at me like, I don't understand. I'm in Christ Jesus Back off! Yeah, it's probably just like... Well, because I get irritated, right? Because, I mean, Romans 8 says, who can lay the charge at, at, at God's elect? No one can. Back off! And they want to accuse you of everything. Like, you just make accusations. Make all your accusations. In Christ, I'm sanctified. So you can say, there must be a change. There must be a change to prove you're safe. You're right. And it's a perfect change. So what are you going to accuse me of? Oh, you're, you're, you're preaching easy believism. No, I'm preaching the perfection of Christ. You want to preach about your so-called, how wonderful you are, when I know you're trash and you're garbage, just like I am. And the reason I know you're trash and garbage is you're sitting here making accusations against me. But it's just the reality of how this works. So you understand how sanctification is? And we always miss this because we reduce sanctification to nothing more than what? A process, which we then say that process is the test to prove your justification. And we've already destroyed this argument. How did we destroy this argument? Remember, I, I went over the top, overboard. You could say I was ridiculous with my illustration about math, right? I have a zero on my math test, right? In fact, it's below zero. The teacher comes to me, pulls me aside, and says, you're the dumbest person we have ever known in the history of school, right? 
We've gone through all the history books. We've looked at archaeology. We've looked at uh, paint, paint drawings in caves. You're an idiot. You're, there's no one worse. And you're like, okay, that's it. I, I am. But then I can say, hey, 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 now. Hey, now. This has been given to me. And they grade it, and it's a 100 plus, and they got the bonus questions. I'm like, well, that's been imputed to me. Now, the minute that's been imputed to me, how do you test that? Do you test me? If you test me, what's going to happen? I'm the same idiot. Right? Did my math skills all of a sudden dramatically improve? No, the only they would, the way they would dramatically improve is not imputation, but they infuse me with math skills. And I'm like, dun, 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 right? Well, are we testing people for imputed or infused? People want to test people for the imputed. Well, guess what? If you're going to test me for the imputed, who do you have to test? Jesus. And guess what? He's going to score every single time you test him. So you come at me and tell me that I've got to have this change and this change and this change and this change that you artificially impose upon me to prove that I'm saved and I will tell you, get out of my face, go see Jesus and let him take the test and guess what? You can come back and say whatever you want but I scored 100. Now, if I don't believe in imputed righteousness, I think that's the most ridiculous illustration I've ever heard. Catholics would be like, that's ridiculous. That is stupid. You don't get an imputed. You get an infused. And guess who I'm testing? You. And if you commit a mortal, you fail. Well, I'm not a Catholic. What drives me crazy, as soon as I present this, guess what I'm accused of? An antinomian. That has zero to do with antinomianism. That has literally nothing to do with antinomianism. This is about the perfection of Christ that is imputed to me. You are calling me an antinomian because you reject the imputed righteousness of Christ while you claim that you do. But if you really claim that you believe in imputed righteousness, you wouldn't be testing me. Because you could test me a hundred years and guess what my test will show every single time? No, well, if you test me, sinner, 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 sinner. And if you test Christ, perfection, 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 perfection. Does that make sense? The first, uh, this is what they say in 1 Corinthians one thirty. The first requirement is to obtain wisdom, knowledge of the way of salvation. This is the primary step. Next comes righteousness, which we obtain by faith. Not till we have attained, uh, not until this has been attained comes sanctification. I will argue, I'm going to quote 1 Corinthians one thirty a little different than they do, because they try to break it up, and I think that's ridiculous. Go back to 1 Corinthians one thirty. But of him are ye in Christ, 
in Christ, this is what happens. Jesus, right, who, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In Christ, I have wisdom, I have righteousness. What else do I have? Sanctification and redemption. All of that is what I have in Christ. So you say, and, and I know people are like, there must be a change. And I'm like, yeah, it's been 100% change in Christ Jesus. I was like, no, practical. Well, then you don't believe in imputed and you're a Catholic. So get out of my face. We have no, nothing in common. Right? Am, am I going to, I mean, what's the point of arguing with a Catholic on this? Because unless we come to an agreement on whether it's imputed or infused, it's a, it's a waste of time. Why am I going to argue with some so-called supposed evangelical who basically is teaching me Roman Catholicism? I'm not going to argue. Go to the Roman Catholic Church. They will be more than happy. to. But you know why evangelicals won't do that? They don't want to submit to the Pope. They want to be the Pope. Okay. Oh, that is good. Yeah. That according as it is written, he that glorifieth, let him glorify in the Lord. Why do we, why do we glorify in the Lord? All of that is, none of that is us. It's not my wisdom. It's his wisdom. It's not my sanctification. It's his sanctification. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's not my, all of it is his. I don't boast. Now, all of that, from all of that, that's all true. Then I try to live out. Let me, I've said this so many times. The Christian life is the impossible task of living out in practice what is true positionally. Should we try to live it out? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are we called to live it out? Will we do it? No. And for some weird reason, saying that is not enough because what they want to be able to do is to determine who doesn't do it enough so that they can say they aren't saved. And what was so weird to me is when people argue, is like, why are you so worried about it? Because you feel you need the magisterial authority to tell me who's saved and not saved? And here's the thing, instead of arguing with me, you better check yourself to see if you're saved. Why are you, why are you arguing with me? Check yourself, because I guarantee you, if I dig deep enough, if I hire the right private investigator and the right hacker, I bet you you won't be in my face. I bet you would go away really quick and say, well, you know, the change doesn't have to be perfect. Of course, yeah. All of a sudden, it doesn't have to be perfect. That, that, you see how important that passage is? All right. Now go to John 15, 5. Oh, man, we're going to run out of time. All right. John 15, 5. What do we have here? Man, uh, of all the passages of Scripture that we've covered so far in this study, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 30 and 31, 
may be the ones you want to memorize because those things, that's a beautiful section of scripture. And Stephen did a very good job of pointing out verse 31 because you're right. Where, what do we boast in? Boast in the Lord. That's it. And that, and really that, that our rendering, uh, our reading of 30 makes 31 make sense. If you read it any other way, it destroys 31. All right. So yeah, that, that's really good. All right. Go to John 15. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now please note, how do we abide in Christ? How are we grafted in, well, how, how are we grafted in Christ? By faith. By faith, he is in me, I am in him. All right? True? Now, first of all, let's make this very clear. Everyone wants to talk about the fruit portion, but let's make this very clear. Because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, in one way, how much fruit do I produce? All of it, because all of the fruit Christ produced is mine. All right? Let's make that very clear. This is what they say. The Savior desires that we be grafted in him like branches in a vine. This means that we believe in him with our whole heart, but put our confidence and trust in him and embrace him wholly with the arms of faith so that we live only in him. Our, uh, we only live in him, our Jesus, who has rescued us and saves us. When this takes place, we shall bear fruit. The Savior then shows that we must be justified before we can lead a sanctified life. If we become loose, uh, severed branches, we wither and bear no fruit. All right. The point is, though, the sanctification follows what? The justification. Now, again, that sanctification has those two parts. On one hand, I'm completely sanctified. On the other part, I'm being sanctified. I got no problem saying there will be... Look, I got no problem trying to say, hey, there should be some sanctification in a person's life. I got no problem if you say that. But what can you not say? That I'm going to use that to determine your salvation because that destroys imputed righteousness. Right? And again, you know how hard it is to try to determine if someone has spiritual fruit or not? And why are we so worried about judging everyone else's spiritual fruit? I don't understand why we... Like the people who get upset about are clearly wanting to judge other people. Because if you're so upset about it, just worry about yourself. And if you're really worried about yourself at all, what would you probably go, oh man, man, I think I'm bearing spiritual fruit. I think. But, But sometimes when we start examining that fruit that we think is in our life, what do we tend to find about it? Oh, our motives are wrong. It's corrupted. It, it's never, is it ever perfect? It's never perfect. And, and here's the thing. We always convince ourselves that it is, which is why I love the story of the rich young ruler. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the law. I've done that since I was little. Oh, okay. All right, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, all of a sudden, that so-called keeping the law. See, it's easy to say that you're being obedient until you're put on the spot. 
Oh, 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 you tell me you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Okay, and then you give them something specific to do. Oh, you say you love your enemy? Well, let your enemy walk through that door with a gun and show me how much you love them. Oh, well, Jesus didn't mean that. See, so because immediately we say, well, Jesus doesn't mean that we have to sell all of our goods. Well, he didn't mean it. Why did he tell him to do it? Right? Jesus obviously meant it there. Over and over and over, we'll get to these scriptures where Jesus tells us to do something and we immediately say, he couldn't have meant that. He couldn't have meant that. Well, because we have to water it down so we think we can do it. Did Jesus tell the, 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 the rich young ruler, hey, come back, I was just joking. Come on back. Okay, you, just, just, sell, just sell your bicycle. Just sell your bicycle and give it to someone who needs one. He didn't do that. He just let the guy walk away. And we'd be like, Jesus just failed evangelism class. He just failed evangelism. He didn't even tell him to say the sinner's prayer. What was Jesus thinking? What was he doing? What did he want the guy to do? I can't do this. Good. You're right. No one can. But I It's so easy to walk around saying, you must show your salvation by what you do. Yeah, and let me flip that around. You show me your salvation by what you do, and I'll just start offering some specific things. And guess what? You'll fail. And so will I. So the people who demand there must be a change, they don't really mean a change. They mean a surface-level playing church. Meditate on God's word day and night. But they never do Bible study. I I think you should be quiet. Pray without ceasing. Their prayer life, they're more committed to who knows what than they are their prayer life. Put where your treasure is, there's your heart. But they seem to be more worried about money than they are God. Hmm, I think you better go check yourself. Right? I can go, love your enemy. Man, they sure do talk and gossip and slander people. See, but before, if you're even remotely honest, you'll be like, man. So then they have to just find some little thing and see, 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 there's change. What does that even mean? It, it's subjective. And some of the change they point to is the same change you can find in the life of a Muslim and the life of a Buddhist and the life of a Mormon. Or you may find it in Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous because some of those people have dramatic change in their life without God. So that doesn't even prove anything. So, here's the way it works. Justification, sanctification. First of all, my sanctification is already done for me in Christ. I am to try to live it out, but I just can't use it to judge my justification because if I do that, then I destroy the whole idea of imputed righteousness. Does that make sense? All right, now, this is the most powerful statement in this section. You ready? To confound... Justification and sanctification, to confound these two, is one of the most horrid errors.
when we confound these, they believe we're committing one of the most horrific theological errors. And I will say amen to it. Because it, what, what gets destroyed when you confound them? Well, both of them, but justification gets just annihilated. Justification gets annihilated. And you turn the gospel not into, not into saving me as a sinner by an imputed righteousness, but the gospel is simply, simply here to make me a better person. And that's what's preached. You're going to be a better person. Oh, you're struggling with that addiction? Come to Jesus. The addiction will go away. No, he's going to save me from my sins that I've committed in my addiction. My addiction may not go away. And I know when I say that, people lose their mind. But because they believe justification is power. They believe justification is an infused righteousness. But of which too many times, especially if you look into the LGBTQ world, too many times where people have made a profession of faith and they begged and they pleaded for God to take away the same-sex attraction. And they begged and they pleaded and they begged and they pleaded and they said, Christianity doesn't work, it's a bunch of garbage. And you know whose fault it is? The church. Because we told them that being justified would make it go away. Now, I don't know why we tell them it will make it go away when we can be heterosexuals and lost our entire life. It doesn't go away. Or struggle with something else. I mean, I'll just leave it in that row, but I'm just saying, you know, hey, hey, ladies, you're not very submissive, but you become a Christian, boom, all of a sudden you're the most submissive person in the world. I've seen lots of women, it doesn't work, work so good. <laughs> okay. A sanctified joke, okay? Right? Okay. But true, I mean we we laugh but we all know it to be true, right? That there's those things we why is it that we can struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle, but then we look at someone else and go, You're probably not saved. Who are you who do you think you are? Some God complex. We want to be God. Yeah, the job's taken. And you know what he says? You put your faith in me. Your sin is forgiven. And my righteousness is accredited to your account. And now you will always score an A on the test. Because you have my grade. Now, does he call me to live out a righteous life? Yes. We should strive for it. But we go into it knowing it can't happen. And see, the minute I say that we can't do it perfectly is where they lose their minds. But then they play the game saying you can do it and then turn around and say, but you can't do it perfectly. And if I can't do it perfectly, that means I can't do it because what does the law demand? Perfection. So you can't take my imperfection and then try to say that imperfection can judge whether I'm perfectly saved. How can imperfection ever be used to judge perfect salvation? Because it would require perfection to judge perfect salvation. It's the most broken logic under the sun. But is that not a profound statement? To confound justification and sanctification is one of the most horrid errors. Now, if you'll remember, just I'll remind us of this, 
when I was beginning to try to work this out and struggle with this and trying to figure this out, I, I even did a message entitled, so how separate should these be? Or how close should these be? Should we relook at this? Because I was confused by this. I was like, well, wait a minute. We, because I realized we were making contradictions in our, with our own, like the way evangelicals talked about it. Because I'm like, well, wait a minute. We say justification and sanctification are different. But then we turn around and say, if we're not sanctified enough, then we're not justified enough. So that means the basis of my salvation seems to be my sanctification, not my justification. And remember, I, I don't know if y'all remember that message. And I was like, we're really saying, that, and remember, my exact words are, we're saying the exact same things the Catholics are saying. I don't know if you remember that. I'm like, we're just Catholics. Because I was, I was, and it was when I was going to school at the Catholic universities when I started going, wait a minute, we're, because they're the ones who pointed out, you're just like us. Well, I know y'all got scared, but because I was, but because I was so confused, I was like, well, wait a minute. We, 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 cause, because when, when asked a question, I would be like, justification and sanctification are different. And they would be like, oh, you really think so? So what happens if you don't have enough sanctification? And guess what my answer was? Probably not justified. And they were like, huh. Sounds like they're more linked together than you pretend. Get out of my head. Okay, like, what are you doing to me? Catholic witchcraft? What kind of nonsense is this? And all of a sudden I realized, man. So, like, like, then I started realizing, wait a minute, Mike, our confession says we don't believe in an infused righteousness. And yet here we are teaching that. And then I'm like, we got a problem. Now, I didn't know how to process it yet. Because remember, my, my early salvation was, we, ca- I, we, we were saved at the time, you know, this book was taken over the world. The gospel according to Jesus. I didn't, I thought that was, I didn't know the Christianity that existed prior to it. This is literally the, the textbook that, that sparked it all. And so I was just like, you got to do this, 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 you got to do this. So the way I did it is, okay, I'll do what I can. And then so do so good at that, that that'll make up for all the other stuff I don't do. Oh, study, read, I got it. I do, I do so much of that, it's got to make up for the other mistakes. I mean, come on, don't we have a tendency to do that? Because you had things that you were good in your, maybe your thing was prayer. And you're like, man, I pray better than anybody. I know I'm saved. I'll just skip, skip the other stuff. We, we, all, we all did that. Well, we're, well, guess what we did? We obliterated the distinction. Now, I'll end by just reading the whole paragraph. To confound justification and sanctification is one of the most horrid errors. Only by a strict separation of justification and sanctification is a sinner made to understand clearly and become certain that he has been received into grace by God. The only way to know that you're truly saved is that absolute perfect distinction between the two. To merge them together, you can never know you're saved. 
Because you'll never know if you have enough sanctification. And even if you think you have enough sanctification on a Monday, what about a Tuesday? In fact, the reality is, you would have to get to the end of your life to see if there was enough sanctification to save you, which do you realize what you just did? You just threw out the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's horrifying. And this knowledge equips them with the strength to walk in a new life. Now, what they mean by that, it's the knowledge of knowing that I'm saved because of imputed righteousness. That should be the motivator. That should be the thing that encourages me to try to walk the right way because I'm doing so out of gratitude and love for what Christ has done for me. Not out of trying to prove something or pass some test, but because I've been saved by an imputed righteousness, by grace alone, through faith alone, and because of what God has done for me. And look, and just look at Romans 12.1 really quick. Because everyone says Romans 1 through 11 is the theological and 12 through the following is the practical. What's the basis of the practical? How does it begin? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's the motivation for the practical? God's mercy. Where has God's mercy been shown in Romans 1 through 11? In justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That's what motivates. And you know why I can be motivated to try to live out the Christian life? Because no matter how much I fail, I still have an A. You know how good I would do in math if I knew that I would never get a wrong answer? I'd be willing to try all the time, right? Who wants to do your math homework when you know there's a 99.9% chance I'm going to go to school and fail? What's the point? Why do it? I'm going to fail anyway. So I just said, don't do it, right? That makes more, does that make most sense, right? I, I was good time management, right? But if I know that no matter what I do, I'm going to get an A, well, why not try? Right? Why not try? Okay, I'll try that. Yeah, I'll try that. Yeah, okay, whatever. I get an A either way. That's kind of the point, right? That we've had a change of mind. Stacy mentioned that we need to have a change of mind about math, but we do have a change of mind about everything, right? Repentance is a change of mind. Our attitude is changed about God. Our mind is changed about God. Our mind is changed about sin. And, but here's the thing. Now I'm going to live it out, hopefully doing it right, because I know that no matter what happens, I get an A. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, this subject is so vitally important. I cannot speak for anyone else in this room, but I know that I have so messed up these two so much in my Christian life. Confusing, confounding. Gospel, law, sanctification, justification, that I have probably destroyed all of them in some way, shape, or form in my own life. Forgive me for the ways I've handled them in the past. And Lord, all, I hope that our understanding of this will be better in the present so that we can live out a Christian life motivated by the right things instead of the wrong things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,